You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. And you are tuned to The Grapevine with Kalia and Dylan. And award-winning documentary The Bad Kids is the closing night film for the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival uh, this um, on the 19th of May. Um, the film follows students at the unique um, Black Rock, Rock High School in the Mojave Desert in the US that provides troubled students with a supportive environment to get their lives back on track and earn their high school diploma. It's won numerous awards, including at Sundance, and we welcome the directors Keith Fulton and Lou Pepe to Triple R, and it's really great to have you here. And congratulations on the film. Um, uh, pretty incredible documentary. What took you first to to Blackrock? Keith, you want to go? Thanks. For, uh, we're, we're happy to be here. Um, um, we, um, Lou and I, had actually been making documentaries for the Gates Foundation, short documentaries for a couple of years um, at various public schools throughout Southern California. Um, and we chose exclusively pretty much to work in schools which were difficult schools, difficult environments, uh, where teachers were struggling to reach normally underprivileged kids and um, a lot of schools which are called in the United States failing schools. And it's not that they're bad schools, but they are failing to reach the, pop- the branch of the student population that is difficult to reach. Um, and we did uh, one of our projects out in the Mojave Desert area, and the assistant superintendent of that school district introduced us to Black Rock High School. And the second we stepped through the doors of that school, we thought, this is this kind of school is the solution to the problem of failing schools. Are there many schools like Black Rock? Because it's it's just for 11th and 12th graders, as I understand. It's called, I think, a, a continuation school. Are there, are there many of those in the United States? Uh, California has 500 continuation schools in it, but they are not run uniformly. So I think the typical... Um, sense that people have of a continuation school is that it's a dumping ground. Like, those are bad kids. Get them out of the mainstream high school and away from the other kids that they might affect so that often often a school like Black Rock High School has kids who are dealing with teen pregnancy, homelessness, abusive home situations. Um, and I think just in general, in, in most high schools across the country, the, the, most districts have what they call an alternative school where the kids who don't fit in go. Um, and depending on the, the sort of socioeconomic status of that district, it could be that those are just the kids who are different or it could be that those are the kids who are dealing with problems associated with poverty. But the, the conventional wisdom at a lot of these schools is that it's, it's supposed to be a punitive environment. These kids have been bad. We need to punish the kids. Um, and, and at Black Rock High School, that's quite the opposite technique they use. It's a very nurturing environment. Well, it's not at all, um, at least as far as the, the film documents it, uh, unruly or, or chaotic. We, we see it uh, as, as very much a nurturing environment. Is that is that the way that you experienced as well, kind of off camera? Or Yeah, I mean, they are teenagers, mm. and that doesn't change. Um, but... But there was the thing that we noticed the most at Black Rock High School that I, I don't remember from my own high school experience is how supportive and empathetic the students are to each other. Um, I think every kid at that high school realizes whatever I'm dealing with at home, the kid next to me is dealing with something similar. And, and there's, a, there's a camaraderie and a support between the students there that I think was the thing that took us aback the most. 
And and you say that it's, I mean, clearly the the Black Rock is not a punitive place, but that said, there are responsibilities for the students and and we kind of get a sense of the the pep talks that the students get when they're beginning and through their education from the principal and from other staff. Maybe go to to their techniques. How do they keep these kids engaged in that way? Well, I think um, honesty and communication is critical at the school. I mean, for the most part, these kids are, are very accustomed to no one asking them what's really going on in their lives. You know, in a school environment, you you have teachers who normally only have the time to judge whether you're doing your work or not. Um, and speaking about what's going on in students' home lives is very rare. You know, you might go to a guidance counselor at the mainstream high school and expect that you're going to get some sort of therapy session there. But the guidance counselors don't have time for that either. The guidance counselors are there to, to sort of tick off what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong in classes. Um, at BlackRock, um, because of the small student-to-teacher ratio, it's only 120 kids. Um, and what is the ratio of student-to-teacher there? It's... Uh, there's eight teachers. So, yeah, okay. yeah. so it's a very, very small ratio. Um, there's the time to actually investigate what's going on in the, in the kids' home lives, and usually what's going on in the kids' home lives is what's keeping them from succeeding in the school environment. And it's, it's kind of a, a fly-on-the-wall documentary, I suppose, is the best way to describe it. We, we simply kind of see events unfold at, at Black Rock High School um, without kind of too much, uh, I suppose, narrative or editorial direction. We're, we're seeing stories unfold. And there's kind of three uh, students who, I suppose, form, form the core of the film. Did you identify them early on as the ones that you wanted to follow? Or, or how did that sort of evolve when you were putting the film together? That, that process is a very organic process. So when we started at the school, we asked the principal and the other teachers, you know, which students should we follow? Um, Joey, who's one of our main characters, was one of them. Um, Lee in the film was a kid who the day we walked into the school came up to us with his hand extended and said, hi, I'm Lee, who are you? And when you're a documentary filmmaker, you're looking for characters who are open to the presence of a camera crew and, and willing to let you into their lives. So he, there was a process of self-selection there. Um, and Jennifer was somebody who who we sort of saw around the school, and she's beautiful, and she's always smiling, and she's smart, and we thought, wow, she seems like the high school valedictorian, and she doesn't have any problems, um, which was very much the wrong impression of her. And um, so there were a number of other kids that we were following, and then over time, you just find out which ones are going to open up and let you film. And, and some of those secondary characters are still in the film, but they just did not emerge as the main characters. We're talking about um, the closing night film for the Human Rights and Arts Film Festival. It's called The Bad Kids, and we've got the directors in-house, Keith and Lou. And I think through the film, one one thing that struck me was how much time the staff, the teachers at the school spent trying to give these kids self-belief because that's in the toilet really that very few of them seem to think they can achieve a high school diploma let alone do well and I think that I mean did you see that having effect did did the kids start to start to feel that self-belief or there's there's a technique they use at this high school which is a little merit slip it's just a piece of paper that says, um, we saw that you did this particular thing and we're really proud of you. And it could be you stopped these two kids from getting into a fight or you worked extra hard um, on your English essay um, or you said you were going to turn in your science packet on Friday and you turned it in on Thursday. Um, and the principal goes around every day and passes out these tiny little slips. It's just a piece of paper. It costs nothing. But you see... 
the huge effect it has on kids, these beaming smiles when they realize that someone noticed that they did something good and not only that, but that they recognize it. Because a lot of the the, the students don't have supportive family. I mean, that, that was one thing I, I noted that um, that the, the principal, um, Vonda Vyland, said that, you know, these kids don't have anyone they can rely on at home. Yeah, they, they don't have any positive adult examples usually, um, and 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 they, um, you know, sorry. No. Oh, you want me to say something? Um, I think, you know, what? Oh, you you remember what you want to say? Oh, I completely forgot. You forgot <laughs> what you were going to say. Sorry. <laughs> um, no, I think I think what happens is that. Um, the acknowledgement that the kids get is enough that actually motivates them. It's a it's a positive thing. A punitive environment actually makes it so that kids shut down. But a positive environment and and um, positive reinforcement is is what makes them open up and have hope. And every tiny little thing at the school is spun that way. So even if a student is late showing up at a high school, you expect the wagging finger, you're late, why are you late? And when, when a student walks in late to Black Rock High School, the principal says, I'm really happy that you made it to school today. What can I do to help you get here earlier tomorrow? And she greets them at the bus. So when they're all getting off the bus on the way to school, she's hugging people. If someone's turned up for the first time in a week, it's like, we've been missing you. I mean, what is it that has has given this principal such a different perspective with working with these kind of hard-knock kids compared to other environments? Well, I think her own um, uh, education when she was younger, she she had experiences that are similar to the experiences of the kids in this film. Um, you know, she talked about the fact that many of her teachers told her that she would amount to nothing. And it's amazing that in public education, teachers are allowed to say such things mm-hmm. to students. But when a teacher gets frustrated and a teacher doesn't have enough time to deal with this, all these students' problems, it's easy enough for somebody to say things like this. And I think uh, uh, Principal Veland definitely empathizes with the experiences of these kids. She, she was a bad kid herself. And we, we have a sense of, um, I suppose, just the, the challenge that they're up against at this school in terms of the, the students' home life and, and how much time they spend away from school as well and how much impact you can have at school on these students' lives when they're only, you know, there for a fairly short period of time. Um, you know, we see uh, Joey kind of, um, you know, doing really well and then he kind of falls off the wagon for a while when his home life turns. Uh, we see the, the terrible abuse that, that Jennifer receives her father getting angry at her for graduating a year early when she's done a whole lot of amazing work um, and there's a really heartbreaking scene where one student is really frightened and really scared at the prospect of, of graduating and, and leaving this school do you have much sense of what what happens next how well these students do and how much contact they have with the school once they're kind of out in the big wide world one of the exciting things for us was that there would be days where someone would walk in and we wouldn't know who they were and then it would turn out that they were a Black Rock student who was just stopped by the school um, a year, two years, three years later just to check in. Um, there, There is in that community an incredible uh, sense of gratitude to the teachers at Black Rock High School for how they've changed people's lives. Even if a kid dropped out they might come back to that school five years later and say, I know I dropped out, but what you gave me at this school helped me get my life turned around. You know, it took me five years, but now I'm in a better place. Um, 
and and so I think the effects have a lot to do with with a long term sense of how human beings can positively impact each other. And this uh, is billed uh, as part of the Human Rights and Arts Film Festival as a child rights film, and I suppose it's that that right to education. And in the US, uh, how these kids don't seem to have a right to education in in a regular high school, but are these schools changing the way that um, the, the opportunities, I suppose, for kids that that come from these very challenged backgrounds? Well, a high school diploma is, you know, it, it's only one step. Obviously, it's still a struggle for these kids. The, the area in which they live is, is deeply impoverished. There's not a lot of jobs out there. So even with a high school diploma, it's hard for them to get beyond this community, and they don't have the support at home. Um, but without a high school diploma, you can't even join the military. You know, the, one of the major sources of employment in that part of the world is the Marine, the Marine base that's in 29 Palms, um, and so, you, you know, what you cannot do with a high school diploma is extraordinary. You need one. Um, so this is a first step, and the, the principal at the school also acknowledges this is just one step. There's many, many, many more for these kids. But I think, I think part of what happens is that uh, they come from an environment where they don't have that much of a positive sense that they can ever break out of these cycles of poverty. And, and what Black Rock High School gives them is, is a, a little bit of a roadmap to show them that you have the ability to change your life if you choose that. And you've worked on um, some quite eclectic films in the past, sort of behind-the-scenes documentaries of uh, Terry Gilliam's films, um, and also another kind of fairly different film, Brothers in the Head, in, in 2006. Have you got anything else in, in the pipeline that you're, you're working on, either in this kind of educational realm or anything quite different that you can talk about? Um, I think we're going to stay in the documentary space right now. Um, One of the things that excited us about being at Black Rock High School was finding a group of teachers who were everyday heroes who who through just sheer determination were tackling problems in their communities that i think on a national scale people feel are insurmountable um so right now we've been looking for other stories of these of other types of everyday heroes people who are trying to change their communities in positive ways um and we haven't found it yet but we've got our eyes peeled sharply well, um, all the best for this film and it's been screened around Australia and, and closing night film for the Human Rights and Arts Film Festival. Uh, thanks so much, Keith Fulton and Lou Pepe uh, coming into Triple R to talk about it and um, I think there's still some tickets left so get along and see it. It's a very beautiful film and um, thanks for Thank coming you. to Triple Thank R. you both. Thanks. Thank you. Most people who um, choose to undergo IVF treatment do not end up having a baby, but we hear more about the successes and the miracles achieved through assisted reproduction than we hear about the more common experience of failure and disappointment. Acclaimed author and filmmaker Julia Lee wants to change this. She's written a very personal book about her experiences of IVF, outlining the impact of the treatment on her body, her marriage, her relationship with family and friends, and the ultimately heartbreaking decision to stop treatment and give up all hope of ever having a baby it's a very beautiful and very touching book uh, and uh, we spoke to julia lee last week when she popped by melbourne so thanks for coming down to triple r julia and I, I know lots of women that are going through or have gone through ivf treatment and i still had no idea how involved it is and i wonder if you could we could start our conversation there and talk about what's involved with with IVF. Right. Well, it is very involved, and it it, it is quite complex. Um, 
Actually, for one thing, IVF is sort of um, <clears throat> it's the colloquial way of talking about... We talk about IVF. But actually, there are a variety of assisted reproduction treatments. I actually probably didn't do straight IVF, which is where they put the the sperm and the egg together in the Petri dish and the sperm fights it out to the egg. I did something called ICSI, which is actually where the, uh, you know, a medical um, technician selects a sperm and injects it straight into the egg in the Petri dish to try and create um, an embryo. When, when I mean, the opening part of your book, and I think, um, you know, like many people, I think just my eyes just... uh, opened wider is that for a great many nights I injected myself with an artificial hormone produced in a line of genetically modified Chinese hamster ovary cells. I did this knowing that no matter how hard I hoped, no matter what I tried, chances were I'd never have a child. And I think that self-injecting process... Mm. That is what I, I suppose it's, I'm it's extremely, thinking about. It is, it is quite full on and um, I do think it is an extreme thing that you do to your body. Um, it's a, it is quite an aggressive intervention on your body um, and it does sound quite sci-fi, doesn't it? Because it's, um, yeah, this I was injecting something called gonal F and it's um, a synthetic hormone um, made from what the yeah, recombinant DNA. This is the world we live in now. Like sci-fi is here right now, um, and uh, yeah. So I, the purpose of injecting that is to get your ovaries to overstimulate, so that instead of producing the one egg, one or two egg per month, you produce many more. Ideally, you know, ten to fifteen or something like that. And I knew really very little about about IVF and, and the whole process before reading this book, and I learned mm. a, a great deal, and I had no idea it was that invasive. Um, and, and I think this is such an important book, uh, both for people like me who don't know a whole lot about it, but also I imagine for the loads of people who are going through this process or who have been through it or, or are thinking about um, you know using IVF in their efforts to, to have a child. Yeah. Have you... Uh, do you wish, I suppose... A book like this was around. I do when you were going yeah, into this I, process. I really do, and I, that was a big um, motivation for writing it. Um, I guess I had a, a couple of reasons why 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 I wrote it. I mean, th- did it feel necessary to me? Yes. Um, it was such an intense time of my life, uh, and I don't think we talk about it. And there is so much failure in IVF. Um, so I wanted to capture my strong feelings before they're blanketed by time because, as we all know, we can go through really heavy stuff and then five years later, it's time has worked, it's magic. Um, and I also want the book to be a corrective to, um, I guess, the... Actually, I would say the push of the IVF industry. So, yeah, it is... It is an extreme thing you're doing to your body. It takes a massive toll. I, I hope it doesn't become the new normal in a way. And I also, I mean, I, I think some people, and I was a bit like that, it, it's sort of a fallback option, like it maybe is an insurance fallback option. But I guess I would caution people about having that approach. Yeah. And, I, I mean, there are some stats in, in your, your book, Julia, but really, I mean, it's Avalanche, a love story. It yeah. is also a very personal journey that you write about. And... 
I think, though, that the odds of success are really worth dwelling on because for women, especially in their, their late 30s and heading into 40s, their success through um, IVF or assisted um, treatment uh, is quite low, mm. but yet... Maybe it's necessary if you're, you're going to engage with IVF that you believe yourself to be the exception. Yeah, I did. I mean, I went in with really high hopes that it would work out. And I think, I mean, because what you put yourself through, so basically yeah, you stimulate the eggs, then you, I had an operation to collect the eggs. That's under a general anaesthetic. Um, and then you you use hormones for two more weeks to sort of support the embryo and then you have the pregnancy test. I mean, it takes over your whole life. But um, you have to have high hope to put yourself through that, right? So uh, patients must have high hope. What you, you couldn't go into it without having high hope because it is a big a big thing to do, which is, is complicated because, um, you know, as, as we're saying, the, the stats are, are pretty low. Like one that did surprise me was that basically all the Australian and New Zealand clinics collect data and they give it to a group at the Uni of New South Wales. And the most recent report came out in 2015 and they looked at data from 2013. And of about 71,000 treatment cycles that year, well, how many do you think had a live birth? Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't tell 18, you. 18.2%. So that's over 80% failure rate. So you don't often hear that stat. That, that's per treatment cycle, but yeah. And how responsible are IVF clinics in communicating these sorts of statistics? Because you, I mean, this is an intensely personal book, really. You, you don't it set is out a to... a personal book, yeah. That's right. Mm. But, but you talk a little bit about uh, the difficulty in comparing one IVF clinic to another in mm -hmm. the statistics that, uh, that they have and the way that they communicate them aren't necessarily the same across mm -hmm. the board. Um, and I read recently that the ACCC had some concerns about the way that IVF clinics were communicating these statistics. Mm. Of course, they're for, it's a for-profit industry. They trade in some sense of, of hope, even though they make a lot of people very happy in, in achieving their goal mm. of having a child. How responsible are they, do you think, in, in the work that they do? Well, that is a complicated question. Um, just about the stats, yeah, they in Australia, you can't really do a direct comparison of success rates between clinics because it's not the data isn't tied to particular clinics to identify which clinics have which rates, etc. In terms of responsibility, look at it, it. It is a it's a tough one. Um, my in my case, I went in with I had really high hopes, and um, you know, frankly, I was also pretty desperate. <laughs> And I was vulnerable and fragile and desperate and I had this uh, really strong desire to have a child. And um, my sense is that they didn't really need to sell me hope. I already had so much desire. Um, but perhaps I do think clinics can work harder to manage hope, perhaps lower hope even. And, and uh, you know, you know you've, you've read the book, so... You sort of have these weird situations as you go through the process further and further into this sort of labyrinth, if you like, <clears throat> where you're offered all these weird and wonderful things where there's really not that much clear evidence that it's actually going to work. And the line is often, well, it's up to you, this treatment. Like, do you want to do it? It's up to you. And 
I don't know. I think I think there could be a bit more. In my case, I, I think I would have benefited from a bit more tough love, you know, especially towards the end. Yeah. Well, there at towards the end. I mean, there's a lot of other things I want to speak to you about. But towards the end, when you are offered what sounded like very much an experimental treatment, where your immune system would be suppressed yeah. in order to up your chances of falling pregnant, and I think at that moment I was kind of cheering you on going don't do it Um, but at the same time it was up to you to choose that way or or another and you asked for a second test and 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 your test came back saying that you didn't need that experimental treatment and Mm. at that point it really did illuminate how kind of yeah a little bit experimental this process Mm. can be as you go through it yeah yeah that was that was uh, quite galling in a way i guess it was um i was offered uh, there's a theory that um if you are transferring i was transferring like five-day blastocysts which is it's a that's a pretty good looking embryo you know um all the embryos are graded by the way so say, say if you, you transfer a grade a five-day blastocyst that's sort of like the highest sort of grade but they weren't taking um and then there was a theory that well perhaps my body was rejecting it through you know like the way you would reject a virus or a cancer or something your immune system and that i had a high level perhaps i had an elevated level of uh, what they call natural killer cells and uh and i had a blood test and the first blood test came back with a, a high number of both the amount and activity of these cells and the treatment the doctor said look so i've written you some prescriptions you can come and get them today you know, you can take a steroid for three months and suppress your immune system for three months and thin your blood at the same time. You know, this is massive. That sounded like massive to me, um, to suppress your immune system. And I I was 44 too, by the way, right? Um, and I was with my sister and she just like, you know, she, she couldn't believe it. And I, I couldn't believe it actually. And I did, and so and I said, well, can I? I just had the thought when I was on the phone to my doctor. Actually, when I did take that blood test, um, I didn't have the flu, but I'd come off the back of a flu. Um, could that perhaps have, you know, stimulated my my immune levels? She said, oh, yeah, it's possible. And I said, so can I? And then I said, could I read? Well, can I take my blood test again? And um, she said, yes, of course, but um, I had to wait a month to do it at the right time sort of thing and um when that second test came back my levels were totally normal so yeah and i mean as we mentioned the, the clinic was was saying that this potentially very invasive and, and problematic um uh methods was up to you it was up to you to make this deci- decision and mm-hmm. and throughout the book um they get the sense that it's i mean it must have been very difficult going through this by yourself while also others around you are kind of offering opinions um asking you really very personal questions about why you're going through this process why you haven't considered other methods of, of having a child and so on what was that like i mean do you think there's enough understanding out there for for how personal the decision decision is to have a child and and the decision to go through ivf treatment is that is that mm. very well understood do you think i think we i think we probably all know the decision to, to try to have a child is very personal i mean probably about as personal as it gets um i don't think people really know what's involved in the world and 
I look, I know it's kind of mysterious to people why why do, did I pull myself through all of this? Um, and I guess it's the thing is, um, you know, I formed this desire to have a child, and it sort of arose out of my marriage actually, and then my marriage sort of fell apart. But I I think I, I thought of this child to be, which I always, I knew it was not a real child. But it also was not was not unreal to me, and I, I, I considered this child to be as, a, as it was a very much a desired and nurtured inner presence um, that something that I couldn't substitute or replace. And I mean, I think how you know when you talk about names for your potential baby, or you can't help but imagine or envisage what the child might be like. So it's sort of um, it's a very strange relationship because yeah, it's not a real child, but it's a sort of attachment to um a childling or a child to be or something like that and was that behind ghost your decision? child was that behind your decision to to call the book avalanche a love story yeah i think there's different love stories in the book but that certainly is a core core love story i guess that yeah love for a child is like quite different to i don't know love for a lover or something like that i have two great sisters who supported me through this and um one of my sisters had her two little girls during this time and i i kind of did experience that sort of love that comes from the heart not so much from the head it's very sort of much more forgiving it's a real softening or something so yeah Julia Lee is with us and we're speaking about her book, um, a very personal story about a, a journey through um, uh, IVF treatment and uh, assisted reproduction treatment um, over a number of years. And I, I think, I mean, you, you spoke there about your family and I wonder about um, your decision in many respects not to speak to people about your treatment as you were going through it. Why was that? I was pretty circumspect about um, who I told. I mean, first, I think there's, you know, many women out there will recognise, you know, will, you know, they're not, they don't talk about their pregnancies until it's a safe and a done deal kind of thing. Also with IVF, you know, sometimes people might ask you lots of questions and then honestly the answers can be so complicated that it's very hard to um, explain. Also, because it is... You know, there's so much despair at times. Like that's why my, I really feel for people now who might be actually experiencing this. But there is, can be so much despair that if people sort of half listen, <laughs> or they don't really get it, it can sort of diminish your experience in a way. I think, uh, you know, I felt a bit self-conscious if I would be, say, talking to my friends who were new mothers and who were totally happy and obsessed with their babies. I didn't really want to be the, the dark rain cloud you know or maybe people who might have had other sort of health issues that basically they didn't ask for it you know what I mean they didn't sign up for you know breast cancer or something there's with that struggle here I am I've I have signed up for IVF you know what I mean I am complicit well, I, that's, I, that's this qualified sympathy that yeah. you speak about mm. and when you wrote it in that way mm. I, I thought yes I've I've heard people say that well you know you yeah you put your hand up for that that's so right. you know the cost and the and you the major bed you know, yeah, yeah i i when you wrote it i i mm. thought that I, that really did ring true and i wonder what that feels like when people have qualified sympathy yeah i don't know what can you do but <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> As I was was reading your book, I sort of went went in with no preconceptions. Mm-hmm. I hadn't read anything about it mm-hmm. uh, as such, and I, I kept thinking or assuming that there'd be a happy ending every time there was a sign that maybe uh, the embryo had been fertilized. I was like, "This is it. This is where the book's going to turn, and it's going to turn out very well." And and then you'll be talking about you know the the great experience of having a child after this process. But I, I don't think it's spoiling it for anyone to say that that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Why is it that, that through this very difficult experience, which you didn't sort of tell everyone about necessarily, why did you then want to write a book about it and, and relay this very personal period in your life? Well, I guess it goes back to what we were saying before of um, just capturing those strong feelings and putting it out there. And I guess I, I guess really I do want to offer a kind of shared aloneness to women, couples who are in this world. I think literature does that. I mean, it's a way where we can address the sort of stuff that we don't like to speak about. Um, yeah, sometimes if you can, if you can just sort of recognize, if you read something and then you can recognize things in it that resonate with you and like that sort of mirrors my experience in a way. It might not be exactly the same, but yeah, a similar thing happened to me. And, um, you know, that's what, you know, there's this sort of, I don't know what the word is, consolation, solace, mm. some sort of, yeah, quiet recognition or something. And, and this is a non-fiction mm. book before, I mean, you've made film um, and you've written fiction, which has been very well received. Um, was it a, a big change for you to write non-fiction, Julia? Yes. Yeah, I found, um, well, on the one hand, it was easier because you are following the actual course of events. So, you you know, you have your path laid out for you. So that's easier in a way. But I, I, I confess I did find um, writing in the first person very difficult. Partly because one of the reasons, you know, we have many complex reasons, by the way, for wanting to have a child. And I don't, I sort of touch on various ones of them throughout the book and I can't give a simple answer. But, um, you know, I did sort of want to decenter, you know, to no longer just be thinking of myself all the time. And um, uh, so, yeah, writing in first person then, was a challenge and I don't know it's I mean I sort of query if we have a fixed I self anyway but yeah I sort of needed it for the book (laughs) and um and the the book's only newly published but have you had much feedback from from people who have have read it and and for whom it's it's really resonated with them so far I really have and um I mean one friend said to me that oh you know Julia I as I was reading it um it was sort of like the things that only then did I realise that you were giving voice to the things that I hadn't dared to face myself. Because there is a, you have to face a whole lot in IVF, and especially if it looks like it's not going to work, there's a sort of a bit of an abyss. And yeah, so there is a sort of wanting to turn away from that. It's very hard to face. Like the decision to give up was incredibly difficult. So yeah. And I, I do want to ask you about that decision to stop treatment because your book. It just my heart swelled all the way through it and I think because like so many people people in my life very dear to me have have gone through this process and this decision mm. to stop I knew it was hard for my friends and I can read that it's hard for you but I didn't realize how fraught it is to mm. say I'm I am no longer going to do this again mm. It's a big call, isn't it? And that people would then question that and say, "Oh, really? Why don't mm. you have another go?" Yeah. You know, this yeah. 
Yeah, it's a big call. I mean, it's a very unusual situation to be in that you sort of have to say, right, after this next pregnancy test, if it doesn't work, therefore I have to face enormous grief. (laughs) That's the day it's going to, you know, it's actually like, that's it. Um, And, you know, frankly, there are many ways you can keep going on in this world. I mean, there's, you know, there are donor eggs, there are surrogates, there are crazy things so but i i sort of drew a line yeah and i i i felt it was incredibly difficult but i guess there was a bit of relief too that i was well there wasn't immediate relief actually there wasn't immediate relief relief it was actually terrible but eventually i was quite relieved to be out of the grip the grip of this world yeah well, Julia Lee's book Avalanche, A Love Story is out through Penguin and it's brand new and it's just 133 pages but goodness it takes you on a journey and it's beautifully written and thank you so much for writing it and I, um, when our producer put this in my hands last week I said to her I've been waiting for a book like this oh, and great. it absolutely uh, I think um, explains so much about what, what many women and, and um, families are going through so thank you for this and uh, all the best. Thanks so much. Thanks, Julia. The campaign for recognition of Australia's first peoples in the Constitution continues with a timetable set out kind of for a referendum next year, but are we on track for a yes vote and has enough been done to lay the groundwork for a referendum of this kind and how close are we to settling on what is actually meant by recognition? In a wide-ranging book called It's Our Country, edited by Professors Marcia Langton and Megan Davis, 17 Indigenous authors, including now Senator Patrick Dodson, Noel Pearson, Dawn Casey and Kirsty Parker, make their case for recognition and reform and I'm really pleased to welcome Marcia Langton into Triple R. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. And I think it's worth starting from the beginning of the, the concept behind this book. What were the aims when you were um, decided to edit a book of this kind? Uh, well, primarily, we were concerned uh, that the Indigenous voice is not being heard in the debate. You know, we have uh, constitutional lawyers on either side uh, with, you know, a handful of leaders um, arguing for and against the cases being put by constitutional lawyers. But um, there are hundreds of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who have a very clear view. Um, They might vary enormously, but they have a very clear view about the unfinished business of our constitution. Um, There's general agreement in our communities in any case that the constitution's racist. There's a variety of views about how that should be dealt with. But uh, we're very cons- we were very concerned that um, the key leaders were not being heard. So in this book, you'll find essays by our first silk, Tony McAvoy, uh, the CEO of the Kimberley Land Council, Nolan Hunter, um, Kirsty Parker, the um, outgoing um, chair of uh, the First Nations Congress, uh, Josephine Bourne, a Torres Strait Islander woman who served on the expert panel, um, and the list goes on. So um, <clears throat> the public are not accustomed to hearing from these people. The media don't even, you know, interview them by and large on these matters, um, and they ought to. Um, so <clears throat> I think there's a view in in some 
political circles that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people don't know what they want and in any case they argue too much, not like constitutional lawyers, mind you, um, but actually, yes, the arguments in here are very profound. And I think um, it's in your chapter, because you, you and Megan both write a chapter each, and in yours you, you do give us, I think, an important history lesson on how the Constitution was formed and the explicit exclusion of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders from that process. Maybe bring, bring that story to, to us. Uh, yeah. Well, that's right. Um, Ab- Aboriginal people, and, and you know, legally that includes Torres Strait Islanders, um, were explicitly excluded from the Constitution. Now, my argument is... Uh, and, you know, I've had a look at the records, um, that the reason for the exclusion was um, not just racist, although certainly the racism is there to read um, in all of its, you know, colour in in the um, uh, convention transcripts, the convention records the from the 1890s. Extraordinary racism. I mean, you know, there, still, there were still uh, people... Um, arguing that, you know, the black races should be wiped off the face of the earth, and that's in the convention records. Uh, but um, apart from the racism, the other argument, and, and a key one for us today, is that if the, um, the colonies federated, um, the colonies with the most white population, that was, you know, New South Wales and Victoria, would bear the tax burden and have to distribute it according to their constitutional model with the states um, such as South Australia, Western Australia and Queensland where there were still at that time majority Aboriginal populations. And so they didn't want to do that. So in order to keep the taxation distribution for white people only, they excluded Aboriginal people from um, being part of the nation. And so, therefore, we were completely excluded until after the 67 referendum, which achieved only two changes, and they appear minor, but they were very significant. Um, We were not allowed to be counted in the census, so that changed after 67. Um, and, 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 And that led to extraordinary changes. Once we were counted and um and the discrimination against us in that uh, provision meant that, you know, we um, the, dis- the taxation distribution through the financial commissions and so on, um, although it never became fair, it's still not fair to this day, um, at least, you know, we were part of the kind of, you know, main machinery of the, of the nation. Um, so, you know, for nearly 70 years... We were not part of the the nation because of the explicit discrimination. Now, not all the discrimination in the Constitution was removed. And, you know, people who investigate these matters, um, such as historians and constitutional lawyers, are, really haven't given an adequate answer as to why um, the Attorney-General's office back in, you know, the 60s uh, drafted the question uh, in the way that they did and didn't deal comprehensively with the racism in the Constitution. So, therefore, you know, we still have Section 5126, the race power, um, and, and, and also Section 25. So, you know, if you were 
a new immigrant to Australia and you sat down and read our constitution, you'd be bowled over by the racism in it. And when I read it out loud to ordinary Australians who believe that they voted for, you know, um, Aboriginal people not to be discriminated against in 1967... They say, we, we thought we voted all of that out. You know, mm. people aren't aware that the job's not done. How different were, were circumstances leading up to the push for the yes vote, the 1967 referendum, which of course was the most successful yes vote in a referendum in Australia's history? How different were those circumstances to today and, and mm. the current campaign for recognising Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in the Constitution and making those amendments? Well, in the 60s, and, you know, this, this campaign developed from um, the campaigns of the 1940s, uh, the, the, it was a people's campaign. So I can remember as a youngster that, you know, my aunties and, you know, all of their friends would use their pensions and have cake stalls uh, to, uh, to run their campaigns. There were... You know, these people were discriminated against in all sorts of ways, not just by, you know, the effect of the Constitution, but by state legislation. And, you know, I grew up in Queensland where it was still an apartheid state until 1984. It was formally an apartheid state until 1984. So well into my adulthood, I was very familiar with um, exclusion and discrimination. But... What was extraordinary was that, you know, all these wonderful people decided, OK, we've had enough, and they they started a very clever campaign um, through the, what was then called the Federal Council, Federal Council for the Advancement of Aborigines. Later on, it included Torres Strait Islanders, and it became FACATSI. Um, the, ex- the national executive uh, was a very interesting group of people. The leader of the... Um, the constitutional campaign was Faith Bandler and she was neither Aboriginal nor Torres Strait Islander. She was a South Sea Islander um, but she just had a, you know, a, a strong heart and a, a, a strong belief in, in um, fairness and, and equity. So um, <clears throat> uh, at one t- stage she put a newspaper into The Australian asking for donations and then um, she put another news full-page advertisement into The Australian to report on what had been donated. And it was a picture of a packet of frankfurters and a bag of sugar. So that was the entirety of the uh, donations for the campaign. So ordinary Aboriginal and Islander people and all of their friends uh, went out campaigning um, on weekends and after hours. Um, there was no official yes or no campaign. There was no government support for them. Um, so it was an entirely different movement from today. So now we have the recognised campaign office, which is fully funded by government, um, and they run a very slick campaign. Um, but because uh, the government just gave them a general brief, you know, go and make people aware of constitution the arguments for constitutional recognition uh, of indigenous Australians uh, without a question they they don't have much to work with uh, and hence the book you know I mean what is the what what are the possibilities for a question to put to the people in a referendum 
in in 67 you know the the campaign slogan was very simple vote yes um uh, so vote yes for aborigines um and the question itself was you know quite a, a detailed set of drafting um but people understood what was being put to them because of the wonderful campaign by the people. At this stage, in the recognised campaign, people don't know what's being put to them because there is no question, because both sides of Parliament, um, I don't know what the Greens' position is, but, you know, Labor and Liberal um, have, have, you know, slid out, you know, into the shadows every time it's put to them, well, where do you stand on... On constitutional recognition. Now, a series of prime ministers have agreed that there should be constitutional recognition, but the question is how? How do you achieve constitutional recognition? And that's all discussed. In and it, I mean, there's lots in it, and we're not going to get through, you know, even a, 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 um, a fingernail of it today. But uh, that said, there, there's for and against arguments for constitutional recognition, and, and one that seems to me to be quite important that would be against constitutional recognition is a um, not having agreement in the Aboriginal community about about it is it to, to support or not support and i wonder how much consensus is there marcia for for constitutional recognition at the moment uh well it's very hard to tell um the uh, the expectation that there should be agreement from a population of seven hundred and fifty thousand is a bit unreasonable i think mm. especially given that you know in any general election the breakdown is usually 51 49 in the rest of the population so what we're the only people on the planet who are not allowed to disagree on major issues of policy um well not to cut know, in there but megan megan writes that we live in a continent that was um, colonized by a polity that both chose not to enter in um into a, a treaty and drafted the world's most difficult to change constitution and i think that those that together seems to be also very important in this. Uh, there's a push from, to answer your question, because I know what you're getting at, there's a push from some people for treaties or a treaty. Now, unfortunately, um, you have to be very well informed to argue that case. It's probably the best argument for a treaty is in Tony McAvoy's essay, uh, it's a brilliant essay and I urge all the youngsters who are babbling on about treaties to read his essay. Um, you know, the fact of the matter is, as he points out, is that we have um, instruments that are very much like treaties and we've had them for 20 years, um, Indigenous land use agreements. And at least two of them are remarkably like any modern treaty in Canada. Um, but, you know, we wouldn't expect young people who can't get off their apps to understand these finer arguments. Megan, by the way, is a constitutional lawyer. She's a very fine constitutional lawyer. I'm not. But I am fascinated by Tony McAvoy's argument. And as a matter of fact, if any of the youngsters did care to read something, they could read the website that we developed over a 12-year period called Agreements, Treaties and Negotiated Settlements. And on that website, there's a uh, searchable database of all the agreements with Indigenous people in Australia and in other international jurisdictions and um, uh, the Ilua's, the Indigenous Land Use Agreements, are all listed and, um, and have various levels of detail on that website. Um, it is still a minority argument, 
the argument for treaties. I see that the Victorian government's taken up the challenge and says that it's going to uh, negotiate a treaty with uh, the yeah, it's Victorian... It's funded a self-determination um, process, mm. I noticed, in the latest mm. budget. Yeah, well, good luck with that. I hope somebody in the mix knows what they're talking about. Um, uh, the, um, you know, treaties are not, as Tony McAvoy points out, um, the, the end point. They... they as we know from dealing with Indigenous land use agreements, governments will constantly try to undermine them. And that's the case in Canada with the treaties. It's the case in New Zealand with the Waitangi Treaty. Um, and, and the argument has to be put clearly that constitutional change is not mutually exclusive of treaties. Mm. Constitutional change can actually support the process for all kinds of agreements to be done with Indigenous people. Constitutional change can support not just the recognition of Indigenous Australians, but like the 67 rec referendum, there'd be a cascade of other reforms. So native title, the, nat the native title decision in the High Court and in, in the statute, recognised native title as a recognisable title in Australia. That led to enormous change. Um, likewise, the recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people would lead to similar change. We would have a formal place at the table. At the moment, we'd, we don't, um, except to the extent that we have any say in native title. Um, every other liberal democracy in the world has dealt with this issue. Australia is the only liberal democracy in the world that has not dealt with its Indigenous peoples and their place in the nation. And, and just quickly, Marcia, because we are uh, quickly running out of time, um, I mean, th there's a vast range of very broad um, opinions and arguments put forward in this book that, that kind of prioritise different elements from a treaty to how constitutional reform and recognition would actually work. Um, but I think sort of on my reading, I was trying to sort of draw a line between them and work out um, how many commonalities there were. And I think there were quite a few um, in terms of the, the inclusion of a broad range of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in that process, which hasn't happened thus far, um, and also that if constitutional recognition and reform is is to happen, it needs to be more than simply symbolic. It needs to have real sort of implications. Is, is that a fair reading of, of exactly. something that ties these essays together? Exactly. That along with uh, removing the racism from our constitution. Now, the, the way you put it is a very good way to put you know, the main arguments. Um, and I think that along with uh, the removal of constitu uh, constitutional racism uh, are maybe very long-term goals. We may be able to ch achieve recognition by statute in, you know, in much the same way that the Victorian government's going about negotiating a treaty because, as you already know, I'm sure, the um, the Victorian parliament has... has um, amended the Victorian Constitution and there's been re constitutional recognition in the Victorian Constitution of um, Victorians, Victoria's Indigenous population for, for some years. Um, you know, so this is a very, you know, advanced jurisdiction um, in Australia, you know, amongst all the Australian jurisdictions. I th think even if people say they're not in favour of constitutional recognition they are in favor of formal recognition of some sort and that that's the that's the key argument and and just quickly are we on track do you think for a vote in may next year is the groundwork have have we done it i doubt it personally i doubt it but you know i'm 
um, probably overly pessimistic. Um, the the recognised campaign uh, publishes its polls regularly, and they say that there's overwhelming support for recognition. Um, we the referendum council has now um, um, announced the constitutional conventions to be held for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people at a series of locations around Australia leading to a national convention at Uluru. Um, we'll see what happens. I think, you know, that, that they, those conventions will determine whether or not we're ready to go to a referendum. Mm. Um, Marcia Lankin, thank you so much for coming in. Professor Marcia Langton's co-editor of a book. It's called It's Our Country, Indigenous Arguments for Meaning, Meaningful Constitutional Recognition and Reform. It's a very sophisticated read and uh, very educative if you're, um, if you're wanting to learn more about this really important issue. And very accessible as well. It really is. It's, it's beautifully written. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.